Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring right now but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? We have something that can help you, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, we've got two remote positions. The first is with Interview Schedule, and they're looking to hire their first product designer. Second position is with Girl Get That Money, and they're looking to hire graphic designers. Also, Facebook is looking to hire a product design manager for the app's UI quality team. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and this episode is brought to you by Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now let's go ahead and jump into this week's interview. I'm talking with William Hill, a software engineer at New Relic in the Bay Area. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is William Hill. Some people, you know, may know me as MJ. Uh, that's mostly for people who've known me like for a long time. But I'm a, so- a senior software engineer currently at New Relic. Now, before we get more into what you do and your background and everything, this is a question that I've been asking, you know, guests. I guess for the past few months now for the show. But like, we're recording this now in the middle of a global health pandemic. So, how are you holding up with all this going on? I'm doing about as well as to be expected. It hit at a really, I mean, it, it's never an opportune time for a global pandemic, right? But uh, it hit at a pretty <laughs> inopportune time for me because I had already accepted the job at New Relic. So I was like basically transitioning between two jobs. And I had planned to have six weeks off oh, in wow. between, you know, starting at New Relic. So I was going to, I had like all these plans. I was going to travel. I had like two conferences I was going to speak at and stuff. I already had tickets to a couple NBA games. I was going to like go do all this stuff. And, you know, obviously none of that happened. So, but just kind of sitting back, relaxing, you know, since I was fun employed for several weeks at the beginning of the pandemic. So it, it just kind of caused me to slow down for a little bit and uh, caught up on some video gaming. <laughs> what is it like kind of being fun employed? Because I know that like folks are in various states of, working or not working, unfortunately, you know, during this time. But what's it like in that transition stage with all this that's happening right now? It was a little nerve wracking, honestly, going into it, because like I said, I'd already accepted the job before the pandemic really started to the curve really started to ramp up. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I had all these plans with my fun employment that I was looking forward to doing. It was going to be because it's so rare as an adult to kind of like get time off 
yeah. voluntarily, voluntarily, you know, getting time off knowing that, hey, I already got something else lined up. So let me take some time off just to kind of rest, recharge and have some fun. Mm-hmm. So going into it, it was like, oh, this is going to be great. But then it, it quickly turned into like a nerve wracking experience because I was like, I'm leaving a very, very stable job. And, you know, I'm keeping an eye on the news, keeping an eye on the app blind and stuff like that, where I'm seeing all these tech layoffs or just layoffs in general. So I was like, yeah. oh, crap. Like, you know, I'm going to a new job. I don't want to be like, you know, the last hired and first fired. So, yeah, yeah. I kept having conversations with my who was going to be my new manager. And I was like, yo, like is how how are y'all looking <laughs> uh, because I've left this other job which was pretty stable I was I already had to set up you know to work from home with them but I didn't want to take that leap in these strange times and then get the axe immediately and then be left without a job yeah I mean that's a hundred percent fair <laughs> I mean that's a that's a very <laughs> fair and valid feeling I mean granted with the way that things are sort of shook out with the pandemic you have industries like the service industry, you know, restaurants, bars, but also hotels and things of that nature, like in the hospitality industry that are suffering from this. But tech is also having big cuts. I was reading the other day about Uber and Lyft having pretty big cuts. I know Airbnb just laid off like a large, I think most of their design team, like Mm -hmm. it's affecting a lot of industries in different ways. And so that's a, a really kind of valid point. Did they sort of reassure you that like you were fine. Like we hired you. You're good. Don't worry about it. They did. They kind of, you know, since they are already a public company, they kind of shared with me. My manager kind of shared with me the financials that with me that, that he could. And even just the nature of their business model kind of led me to believe that I would be OK. Yeah, because their whole thing is application performance monitoring. So you can kind of think of a large large e-commerce or like a large streaming site or something like that, they would use New Relic service to monitor the health of their application, the health of their servers, you know, how performant it is and stuff. So with everyone being stuck inside, that leads to people, you know, doing virtually everything online now, whether it's streaming, whether it's shopping or or whatever. Yeah. So their business model actually kind of lend itself to more people being online and dealing with larger amounts of web traffic. Once I kind of thought about it from that perspective, I was like, okay, this actually, if I was going to go to a company, that's probably the business model of a company I would want to go to during these times where there's going to be heavily increased traffic on the web. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's good on them for being open and transparent with you about financials. I mean, a lot of tech companies do not do that <laughs> at all. So that's good that they are being upfront about that with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was like I was nervous, man. <laughs> like I can imagine uh, that's that's a <laughs> that's a scary feeling. Yeah, because I had everything pretty stable at my at my previous job. You know, I was leading a team there. Yeah, so, you know, had that, I was, had that good government job. Yeah, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I was, I was, I could have just stayed there forever if I wanted to. I could have yeah. just that thing out to retirement if I wanted to, but. <laughs> But yeah, I was like, no, nah, I wanted. I was looking forward to making the leap, and I'd already kind of accepted the job even before everything happened. But man, the world changed in a blink. You know? Yeah, yeah. Have you been, I guess, getting used to like working from home? I mean, it's one thing to kind of start a new job, but then now you're like starting it at the house. Like, how has that been? So the thing is, I was already even when I accepted the job, my plan was to be remote anyway. Okay. And I was partly remote. 
at my previous job. I was doing like two days a week from home anyway. So I kind of already had everything set up to, to work from home. So like my initial plan was probably to at least go to the office of my new job, just kind of onboarding, just to get acclimated with the team, acclimated with the code base and, and, and all that type of stuff. But it pretty much forced me to be fully remote from the jump, which, you know, was eventually the plan anyway. Yeah, it just kind of accelerated the timeline on that. What kind of projects are you working on? I mean, as much as you can, you know, sort of talk about with the work that you're doing, because you said that you're still fairly new there. What sort of work do you do as a senior software engineer? Yeah, so I'm working on the logging team at New Relic, and it's one of the relatively new products where with logging, you have like some type of application. For the most part, you're logging almost every interaction that's coming through your service to that application. So and that can just be a fire hose information. So New Relic created a product that can really help you easily manage and parse those logs to kind of look for the relevant information that, you know, the proverbial needle in the haystack. So I'm working on that team. I've started out primarily doing front end work, but I got brought on as a full stack engineer. So I'll eventually be working on the back end as well with some Java microservices that's hooked up to a Kafka pipeline. So, uh, but as of right now, I'm primarily doing front end work in React. Are there any sort of like particular like projects in general you're working on or is it still fairly new? That's one of the things that's been really dope about my onboarding with New Relic is the team has been great as far as getting me up to speed and they pair program quite a bit, which is something I've really hadn't done since college. Okay. So, But it's been really effective in getting me familiar with the parts of the code base and some of the features that we're looking to implement. So this is just my third week, but I'm happy that I was able to come in and I've already submitted several PRs, already submitted, you know, some features that's about to go out. So I feel good as far as being able to come in and really hit the ground running. You know, I don't want to devote again because since I'm pretty new, I don't want to much about like upcoming products or anything like that that we may be working on. But yeah, I've been able to kind of contribute some stuff that we're hoping to roll out by the end of this fiscal year. Well, excuse me, fiscal quarter. Nice, nice. And now before your work there, you know, we sort of alluded to it earlier. You were working at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. You worked there Mm -hmm. for like almost seven years, right? Correct. Now, first off, tell me what Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory is, because it sounds like a science research facility. I have kind of a passing knowledge of national labs, but when I was in in college, I did internship with NASA, and some of the work that I did was at Oak Ridge National Laboratory mm-hmm. in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. But yeah, talk to me about uh, Lawrence Livermore. Yeah, we actually collaborate with Oak Ridge quite a bit, but the national laboratories, and there's kind of like a, a system of them, of national labs that kind of and you're correct in your assumption there's a lot of like heavy science research and the like. But what they typically do is have computer scientists in support of those scientific missions. So Livermore kind of specializes in a few things. One is the weapons systems. They started out as a nuclear weapons facility. They were building nukes out there. So mm. and that's, that's one of the things I say to people about that is you can't just throw those in the trash. Right. So yeah. <laughs> but, but you can't you can't just go out and fire them anymore either. So one of the big things is that necessitated having a massive amount of computing power to need to simulate different things with those weapon systems. 
since they don't want to, you know, necessarily live firing anymore. So that's one of the things that Livermore is really known for their weapons background and then also just their incredible computing capabilities there. They have a supercomputer. I think it's Sequoia is the newest one that has come online. And then even during my time being there, the commissioned supercomputer at Livermore was consistently ranked in the top three of the most powerful computing machines in the world. Wow. Uh, for, the, for the most part, whenever, you know, the new one, I think there was two new ones commissioned during my time there. And whenever they were plugged up and turned on, they, you know, at the time they were immediately the most powerful computer system in the world. And then, you know, as time went on and other people built something, they eventually got passed. But I think with each one that was commissioned while I was there was the most powerful system in the world. So that's one of the big things that, that happens at Livermore. Then they also have like another really, really cool place called NIF, the National Ignition Facility, where they do uh, like a lot of like fusion research and stuff, which I think they broke or came close to breaking even on like nuclear fission in the recent past. And man, that place in there, I got to tour it, even though I never worked in NIF, but I got to tour it. And it looked like some aliens built. Like it, just, <laughs> it doesn't even look like humans designed and built that place. It's it's just wildly impressive to the point that it was one of the more recent Star Trek movies. I can't remember if it was, you know, the Star Trek like reboot or Star Trek in the darkness or something like that. One of those were actually filmed inside of NIF. So wow. uh, like part of it was filmed inside of NIF. So that's kind of that what the National Labs at least Livermore is kind of known for, but it's a lot of other different research that goes on there from, you know, chemistry stuff to geology, climate science, which is where I spent a, a lot of my time working a little more, working in support of the climate scientists. So it's a lot of different scientific facets and scientific fields that's being researched there. Mm-hmm. And then they usually have the computer scientists in support of those where you're kind of writing tools and such for the subject matter experts. Nice. I've heard of NIF, so, and folks who have listened to the show probably know this, but I interned for Ames Research Center. God, this was 20 years ago. My goodness. It was 20 years ago. I interned for Ames Research Center out in Moffett Field, California. And I heard of NIF because I remember my mentor who was out there, Terry Grant. I don't know if Terry's even still out there, but he just told me, like, that's where they have all the lasers. Yep. <laughs> I guess. It's one of those things. Like I think it's at one point was classified, maybe still classified as the world's most powerful laser. Wow. How did you get started there? It's an interesting journey as far as how I got to Livermore. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I went to college at Mississippi State University, and I was blessed enough to be on scholarship the entire time that I was there. So when it came, you know, time for me to graduate undergrad, so I actually took five years to graduate undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I exhausted my initial scholarship, but then I ended up getting a different scholarship from the Department of Defense called a scholarship for service, where it was basically a, a one-to-one type deal where they funded me for two years and then I would have to work for a Department of Defense agency for two years. So that, you know, covered my last year of undergrad, my first year of grad school. And then I was a graduate teaching assistant to cover my last year but of grad school. But I still, you know, owed the DOD those two years for them funding me. So it sounded great initially in that it's like, oh, they're going to pay for my school and I pretty much guarantee the job um, out the door. Let's do this. Yeah. So sounded great. But I graduated the grad school in 2013 and that's when a lot of stuff happened with like sequestration and furloughs and mm-hmm. hiring freezes and stuff so 
what initially sounded like an awesome deal quickly turned into a sour deal because no one was hiring <laughs> within like the DOD. Yeah. So I was locked into working for this certain set of employers and none of them had available jobs. So I was kind of caught in limbo. Luckily, you know, they recognized the situation that the students, because it wasn't just me, it was other students on the scholarship who were kind of caught in the same situation. They recognized that and then they were open up the restrictions as far as like, okay, you can work for basically any branch or of government, whether that be local, state, fairly funded research and development centers, national labs and the like. So I ended up started, you know, kind of broadening my search as far as where I could potentially work. And I had never heard of like Livermore National Lab or anything like that. So I thought I was going to end up in the D.C. area because I remember going to interview at a company, which I won't name, (laughs) but that was like the, the top of my list. That was like, all right, this is the one that I want. And I went up there super hyped for the interview. I get six adult on the flight to D.C. Oh, no. Like voice gone. I'm like awfully, awfully sick. And and then also, and this is obviously the worst thing versus being sick. I get a call. My grandmother passed as well. Oh, no. um, Up there. So it was not a good trip up there. So I'm I'm bummed about that. I can barely speak. So I'm trying to, you know, drink tea and stuff like that. The night before the interview didn't really help. I wake up. Still barely can talk, feel awful. I go and completely bomb the interview. Damn. And yeah, it was not great. So that was like the one that I identified. I was like, all right, this this is going to be a place I can work. Completely bombed the interview. But luckily, a week before that, I actually had was in D.C. a week before that as well at a conference at the Tapia conference. Okay. So I was there presenting some research that I honestly had barely done, but I was thankful that it got accepted. So I was there presenting a poster and just by happenstance on the way from the airport to the conference hotel, there were, you know, obviously other students who were heading to the conference as well. You know, having to sit by this young lady, she was also from the South, uh, from she was from Florida. So just kind of started chatting. I was like, oh, you're heading to the conference too and all this. And I forgot. Uh, I don't know if this, the topic turned to like if I already had a job lined up or something like that. But she was like, "Oh, you should meet my mentor." She was like, "I worked at this place called Livermore Lab past summer as an intern, and oh, you should meet my mentor. He's going to be here." I was like, "All right." I was like, "Shoot, I ain't got no job right now, so I'm willing to talk to anybody." <laughs> so, so we talk on the on the way there, and, and I guess at some point she found him and told him about me because he came and found me. When I was presenting my poster, we talked then. Uh, this guy's name is Tony Bayless, and I'll forever be be thankful to Tony. I still look at Tony like a big brother, you know, like a mentor. So, you know, we talked then, and I didn't think much of it because I had never been to California. I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. But so we at least made a connection there, and then we had connected on LinkedIn. So, like I said, fast forward back to the, you know, the week where I was in DC, bombed the interview. After that, I'm just down in the dumps. I was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. No one's hiring me. I, I'm. It's fast approaching. I think this was like March. And yeah. I was graduating in May. I was like, oh, man, I don't know yeah. what I'm going to do. So lo and behold, Tony reaches out to me on LinkedIn. He was like, uh, how would you like to work on the West Coast? I'm like, sir, I'd like to work anywhere right now. <laughs> so <laughs> he set it up. They had like this accelerated hiring event where 
they flew me out. They, you know, I don't think I had a phone interview. They just brought me, you know, straight on site. They, they flew me out, put me through like just a brutal round of all day interviews. I think I interviewed like 17s or something like that. And some of them, some of them went bad. But the statement is true is that it only takes one yes. <laughs> and yeah. it, it was one team that said yes, because they were like, all right, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to send you back to your hotel, you know, and we'll call you around 530 to let you know if we want to give you an offer or not. So I'm like sweating bullets back in my hotel. And, you know, sure enough, just past 530, they was like, hey, we want you to come in tomorrow and speak to HR. Wow. Uh, so I was like, whoo, thank God, <laughs> because I was out there struggling, man, as far as like what sounded like a great deal initially with my scholarship really handcuffed me. That's why I said I always forever be thankful for Tony giving me the opportunity out here because, you know, I was looking to stay in the South. Like I was D.C. was probably about the as far as I was looking to go Yeah, yeah. Know, from Mississippi. So I never thought I would end up out here. But boy, am I thankful that I have because this opened up a ton of doors for me. Wow, that is quite a story. I mean, one, I think it's just a blessing that that happened the way it happened. It, it just, it unfolded. That's the first thing that I'm thinking of as you tell me that. And then the second thing I'm thinking of is like, I mentioned, you know, to you before, before we started recording, like we have things in common that I mentioned as I was doing research and like, Pretty much the same thing happened for me when I was in college. <laughs> like I was, I was um, in college on a, a full scholarship from NASA. The thing was, you would intern at two NASA facilities, and then upon graduating, you would like go work at a NASA facility. So the whole time I'm in college, I mean, you know, I'm you know taking courses and stuff, but I'm thinking like my future is straight, like it's set. Like when I graduate, I'm gonna go, you know, work for a NASA facility, and I'm good, right? Mm-hmm. And then. 9-11 happened. It happened Whoa. my junior year when I was in college. And the scholarship program that I was a part of, they pulled the funding from it. And so I had, they basically said, you know, for the current seniors and the juniors, like you all are good in terms of like the scholarship being funded or whatever. But mm-hmm. once you graduate, like you're on your own. And I had nothing lined up because to me, I'm thinking I'm good. I don't have to worry about like trying to find a job somewhere. Like I was in college and I, I know that people go to college, of course, to for studying higher education and things like that. But then also people go to college to get into a certain field to get a job. Mm-hmm. I was not in college to get a job. I was in college because I just really liked math. I get to spend all day doing like my nerdy pursuit and not even thinking about, oh, what kind of job am I going to get? Because I'm set. Now I'm all of a sudden in a position where I'm like, I need to find a job when I graduate. Now I had much more time than you had. Thankfully, <laughs> I had a year and a half and managed to like get myself into a few interview books. Like I interviewed at Microsoft, I interviewed at Real Player, and I interviewed at a bunch of different places. None of them worked. Like none of them panned out. I basically ended up selling tickets at the Symphony after I graduated college. Like I didn't have anything lined up for a long time. But yeah, it's amazing how those kind of things can happen. Where like you think you're set, and then just in the blink of an eye, like it can all change like that. Yeah, it was, uh, man, it was so stressful in that I got everything set up, lined up. Yeah. You know, especially too, man, I love my school, but they did not teach me how to pass, like really how to, to pass a technical interview. <laughs> um, you know, I could do the work, but I hadn't, hadn't really been prepared as far as like, oh, this is how, you know, some companies interview you to do technical stuff. Like, oh, you're going to be expected to write this stuff up on the yeah. whiteboard. Yeah, 
nah, I I wasn't ready for that at all. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. Like I was I was studying math and like there was nothing in my whole curriculum where they were trying to push you towards actually any sort of employment. The main goal for you studying math at Morehouse was that you were going to go on to either like go to graduate school and continue studying math, or you would maybe be like an actuary or a math teacher or something like that. And none of those things appealed to me at the moment. I was like, I don't want to do any of that stuff. And I mean, I would, you know, Morehouse is well known for like its business majors and political science and stuff. And so it's, it's often very common. You see them all dressed up in suits and they're going, you know, from places to interviewing and all this stuff. And I would be like, look at these suckers. <laughs> Just go around campus, going to interviews. I'm so glad I'll have to deal with that. And then now look at me. I'm like, well, but no, I, I know what you mean. Like sometimes you, your school just kind of unfortunately doesn't prepare you for that. And I think, you know, that's that's by proxy of a number of different things. And I don't mean this to say this as an indictment of the South. I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama. I went to school in Georgia. But not every school is going to be on the same level when it comes to really preparing you, I think, for like the working world. Like there are some schools that certainly are pipelines to different companies and things of that nature. And then other schools, you kind of just have to figure it out. Yeah, no, you're totally correct, because that's kind of like what my school was. It was more so like a pipeline to the government. Yeah. Because we had a guy who was kind of running a good part of the cybersecurity program. So I did my master's degree was primarily focused in cybersecurity. And he was very, very well connected in the government. So he was like, I forgot his rank in the, in the Navy, but, you know, longtime Navy veteran and stuff like that. So he was mm-hmm. super well connected within those spaces. And that was pretty much the funnel where a lot of my classmates end up going to, you know, government agencies and stuff like that. So none of us are, well, it was a few maybe who kind of went out to like the, the quote unquote, like Silicon Valley companies, but a lot of us end up going to, you know, government agencies, primarily the department of defense agencies. So that's kind of like where they were funneling us. So they didn't necessarily talk to us, even at our career days, I don't even remember like a Google or Microsoft, maybe Microsoft, because we had a a pretty prominent alum who was at Microsoft. Uh So she may have come back for that. But I don't ever remember seeing like a Google or Facebook wasn't quite what it is now. Whenever I was in school, it was getting there. But I don't ever remember seeing like those massive tech companies at our career fairs. Really? And like, what year was this? Like 2011, something like that? Yeah. So I was an undergrad from 2006 to 2011 mm-hmm. and then grad school 2011 to 2013. And again, this could have been just me thinking like, oh, I'm set. So I don't even really have to go and pay too much attention to the the career fair and what companies are there. Yeah. You know, I would maybe just go there you know, as a, as a formality or, you know, if there were some agencies that was going to be government agencies that was going to be that I would go in there and speak to them. But yeah, I honestly can't remember those type of companies being there. And, and, you know, again, I could be wrong, but I definitely was never, you know, pushed to focus or apply to any of those companies. I didn't, yeah. Those the Silicon Valley companies seemed like another world to me. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't something I was even thinking about. No, I mean, unfortunately, that's that's not surprising. I mean, I think back to that time and like a lot of companies and maybe this has changed now, but a lot of larger, like especially Silicon Valley tech companies and stuff like that, don't really look at the South as a mm-hmm. whole, as a place to find tech talent. They mm-hmm. just don't like they kind of stop at Texas in terms of like if they're going if they're going east, they'll stop yep. at Texas. And then maybe the furthest north they'll go is like 
DC, you know, like DC and then, well, to try to think like the states that go across, but like DC, Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, like anything north of that, it's like Midwest, but like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, what? No, they're not really, maybe Georgia Tech, but as yeah. a whole, they don't really look at the South as like, oh, this is where tech talent can be. I mean, when I graduated, so I graduated college in 2003, mm. and I mean, there was, I mean, Microsoft existed because I did interview there, but like Google was maybe like three or four years old, like certainly not in, in a recruitment level sort of thing. And a lot of companies, I mean, a lot of tech companies just were not looking at the South as, they just didn't look at us as tech at all. It was just sort of like, oh, what are they doing down there? Like, blowing on brown jugs with three X's on them. Like they weren't really thinking that we were like a haven for tech or stuff like that. I mean, at Morehouse, you know, our funnel was into like business and accounting. So like a lot of people graduate from Morehouse, they go on to Goldman Sachs, they go on to one of the like big four accounting firms. So like Deloitte, Ernst Young, KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers, or they'll go into like politics. So like there's a lot of African-American studies majors, political science. They'll go into some form of politics, for science, eh, not so much. Certainly not for math. It was like, oh, you're majoring in math? Oh, well, can you add this? Like, like there wasn't really any sort of a, a pipeline of, of places to go. So even back like when you were in graduate school or getting out of graduate school, like 2011, 2013, if anything, when those companies were looking at the South, it seemed like they were only looking at HBCUs because mm. it was more about, oh, we need to try to diversify. We need to try to find where the diverse candidates are. And so they may skip a school like Mississippi State and they'll look for, I don't know, like maybe might look at Jackson State because they're like, oh, Jackson State's an HBCU. Let's mm-hmm. see what's there instead of like at a larger school like Mississippi State or something like that, which I, I want to say that's changed now. But also I think the nature of the web and certainly, you know, what this pandemic has shown is that it sort of flattened things a little bit in terms of where you can find talent and where you can work from. And I don't know if that necessarily is going to eradicate the pipeline, but it certainly, I think, will poke a few holes in it. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on with you know with all of that. Even at Livermore Lab, I used to go and do quite a bit of recruiting. I was like the designated Southern recruiter uh-huh. guy. <laughs> so they would send me to Georgia Tech and pretty much just Georgia Tech. I was like, we're passing, we're passing, I'm flying over a whole bunch of yeah. really good schools on the way yeah. to Georgia Tech. Now, Georgia Tech was dope, and they always had great candidates, but I think the one other place they ever sent me in the South, still in Atlanta, they sent me to the AUC. So oh. We had, it's like a national lab day where, and that was my first time being on AUC's campus, so it was wild to me. I was like, yo, am I in a Morehouse building or am I in a park <laughs> building right now? So, it's like, as, you know... I think I somehow parked at Spelman, or I think they end up letting me in that parking lot. Yeah, I that's find that's parking anywhere else. yeah. So, so for uh, folks that are listening, like Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta are sort of the three major largest schools in the AUC, which stands for Atlanta University Center, and it's a consortium of a number of different schools. Outside of those three, there's also, at least back in my day, there was Morris Brown College, which is still around, but maybe not as big as it used to be. There's the Interdenominational Theological Center, and there's the Morehouse School of Medicine. So those six schools make up the Atlanta University Center, and we all share one large campus. And so there are discrete like Morehouse buildings, Spelman buildings, Clark buildings, etc. You can normally tell Spelman because we used to call Spelman Fort Spelman. And you can tell because of the like 
huge walls and security cameras around. Whereas Morehouse is a bit more open. Like it opens out like onto the street. Like you can walk in and out very easily, but like they share parking and it's very easy to like cross over a few feet and like, Oh, I'm on Clark's campus or cross over. Oh, I'm on Spellman's campus. Like it's all intertwined together. Yeah, it was wild, but you know, I was loving it just because I know the the main kickoff we had that morning was in the King Center. So it was just ah, yeah. you know, me getting to visit that, seeing the statue outside and I was just just in awe of it, just all the history that's there. But that's the only other place they've ever really sent me in the South. And even still, I remember that we had a few students, like we the lab, for better or worse, made conscious efforts to bring in students from HBCUs. I'll give them credit for that. That's about where it stops. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, because once the students got there, I go into that. But I had my gripes yeah, uh, as yeah. far as how they were how they were treated. But we would have students come in from Spelman quite a bit. We never got too many from Morehouse, like you mentioned, that, you know, since Morehouse is more for like a, a business focus, we would get, I think, maybe some chemistry majors from Morehouse. But I know I was there recruiting specifically for, you know, like computer science and software engineers. So I ended up talking to a few students from Clark. And I remember I actually got one to come. Like, you got one to to come out to the lab and intern at the lab. I didn't even know that he came out there until I saw him that summer. And then he's now out here in the Bay Area doing his thing as well. So I was super happy that, you know, he kind of was able to take that experience and and leverage into something else. But yeah, that's the only other school they've ever sent me to in the South to kind of recruit students. Earlier, you mentioned climate science with respect to the work that you were doing at Lawrence Livermore. Can you go a little bit more into like some specific types of projects that you might have done? Yeah. So I worked in a couple of different capacities when I was with the climate science program. So I kind of worked in a DevOps capacity when I first went over there. They had this giant installation script, which was Honestly, the worst piece of code I've ever worked with in my life. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't even like kudos to the guy that wrote it ahead of me. I respected him and hated him at the same time because he got that thing to work, but it was the worst piece of code I ever worked with. But it was a, like a 7,000 line bash script to install this software stack that was distributed to climate scientists around the world. So that project just kicked my butt. Like I um I came in and worked on that project for like a year and a half trying to refactor it and make it better. So then I eventually moved on from that from like, you know, kind of that devopsy systems type role back into a full stack engineering role because that's what I was doing. Climate science is kind of like the second field and second team that I worked on when I came to the lab. The first thing I worked on was in nonproliferation, which is a a big fancy word for trying to uh, help stop the spread of nuclear weapons. So yeah. I was working as a full stack engineer over there. And then uh, once I kind of moved from the DevOpsy type stuff, I moved back into being a full stack engineer. So still writing tools from climate scientists. So I was doing I was doing full stack. But again, I was probably more heavily focused on the front end because I was writing visualizations for the climate scientists. So mm-hmm. writing writing the APIs and, and Python and then I was using React and D3JS to build out these visualizations for them so that they could basically take a lot of their specified data and specified domain knowledge and put it into a chart that can be easily digestible for someone who may not be as well versed in climate science like myself. I definitely didn't even understand like a lot of the data that I was working with, but I knew how to visualize it. I knew how to make it interactive. So I was able to you know create those type of tools for them. 
So were there other like government agencies like, I don't know, like National Weather Service or NOAA that would use those visualizations? Because I know the way that they typically worked, they heavily collaborated with a bunch of other agencies. I know that the team that I was working on, especially when I was doing like the, the DevOpsy type stuff, there was an international consortium called ESGF where it was the Livermore was the lead kind of research facility, but then there was research, research facilities all over the world. We worked with JPL down in LA. Mm-hmm. We worked with, I think it was a NASA facility in Denver. And then like, you know, then other international numbers. So IPSL in France, uh, DKRZ in Germany, forgot the name of the facilities in Italy and Australia, but it was a large. And then I think there was a facility maybe in Korea as well, but there was a, you know, we collaborated with all of them, as far as the software packages. So each one of those facilities, you know, because it was essentially an open source tool and each one of those facilities were contributing different features and different uh, software packages to the overall consortium. So it was kind of cool because during my time as that kind of DevOps team lead, we ended up winning an R&D 100 award for our work. So that was kind of cool. Nice. So I'm curious, like... (laughs) It seems like it's been a really long journey for you to come from Mississippi to government work at Livermore, and now you're a software engineer working at New Relic. I want to go back to Mississippi. Tell me about where you grew up. (laughs) I grew up in the metropolis of State Line, Mississippi, population of approximately 550 you call it a uh, metropolis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so very small town. Man, I hate to put it like this, but one of the probably poorest towns and probably one of the poorest counties in mm-hmm. Mississippi. It's just very little industry there. Yeah. As far as, you know, jobs and that type of thing. State line, like I said, you know, very, very, very small population, 500 or so. Probably half of that is my family. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I have a, a very large extended family because my dad, between his mom and, and his mom and dad, has I lost count somewhere around like eighteen or nineteen siblings. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I lost count as far as, and then my mom I think is one of seven. So uh-huh. I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of cousins. Yeah. <laughs> so, we probably make up by half the town. Is state uh, line like legit on the state line between Mississippi and Alabama? It really is. Like we did not get creative with the name at all. It's <laughs> it's right on the Mississippi Alabama state line. So it's straight down Highway 45. Like either you know going towards the coast or going to Mobile. So okay, it's down near Mobile. Okay. Yeah, my town basically an hour east is to Mobile and an hour west is to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I grew up in, in Selma, Alabama. Selma, oh, wow. Yeah. Selma's about, I want to say it's like two hours north of Mobile. It's like in South Central, South Central. It's in South Central Alabama. So we're like 50 mm-hmm. miles west of Montgomery. We're 90 miles south of Birmingham. And I want to say we're like 75 miles like south east of Tuscaloosa. So we're like, mm-hmm. I mean, people know of Selma from the, you know, the, the civil rights movement and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a small town, not as small as state line, but it, it was a, a small town that also really didn't have a lot of industry. I mean, we had a Air Force field there, Craig Field, that was large enough for commercial airports, but, or for commercial airlines, but it was never an airport. And they're really, yeah, we had a paper mill, but the paper mill closed down. And I always kind of, you know, kind of joke and say that Selma's kind of main 
industry is just tourism because people come there every year mm-hmm. for the the bridge crossing and stuff. But like, there's I know what it's like to grow up in a small town with like nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. It's it's and you don't realize it. I mean, because that's all you know growing up. But yeah, like, and you know, and I don't mean you know, I mean to like speak for your experience, but like for me, like the only outlets that I had were like television and magazines. We didn't have a movie theater in Selma. We didn't get a movie theater until like I think maybe my junior year of high school. Oh, we got oh a movie wow! Theater. Y'all, y'all had that. Y'all had a theater? Yo. Like, <laughs> we, y'all, y'all big. Listen, we got a McDonald's when I was 14, you I had think. A okay, all right. Okay, look. Don't make it seem like I lived in New York or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, we don't have, like, there's no fast food places. Like, uh-huh. you know, we have, we have one grocery store. Mm-hmm. A Dollar General got there, I think, when I was in college. We have two gas stations, a bank. Mm-hmm. A pharmacy, like a hardware store, and we used to have like this little clothing store. I don't think that anybody went to, but that was it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yo, there's no stoplight, there's no traffic lights in the entire county. Wow, in the whole county, in the entire county, man. Goodness, what was it like growing up there? I mean, yo, I I didn't know any better, but yeah, there was it was so little to do. I spent a lot of time like kind of isolated as a child, just because. In addition to there being, you know, very little to do, just where our house was, we lived right off a highway. Oh. And so we lived outside of like the town. Yeah. So we were out in the country and there was nothing pretty much in walking distance. Like we had a set of cousins that live nearby us that even though they they had a children that was kind of my age, we never played together a whole lot other than just like basketball once I got uh-huh. a little older. So, and then my sisters were all older than me. One was 12 years old and one was six years older. So I was kind of isolated all the time. Yeah. So basically, I didn't start to get like social interactions with other children. So I went to school, like until I got to kindergarten. Yeah. That was a, a bit of an adjustment. But my biggest thing is uh, what was kind of like my saving grace is I was academically gifted. Like from a young age, I picked stuff up very quickly. Like, uh, you know, as far as schoolwork, I picked up like numbers and stuff very quickly to the point where they almost moved me ahead several grades in kindergarten. Like, cause, (laughs) and it was interesting. The reason that I didn't move ahead in that I kind of made my first friend once I went to school who happened to like be my cousin. I had no idea he was my cousin. I just remember going to kindergarten and I'm just, you know, children you just got and run and play. Yeah. So I was just out running and playing. So the kids just kept like tripping me on the playground. It's like, what's, what's this kid's deal? I just, <laughs> yeah, being a jerk. So I, I go home and tell my mom. She was like, oh, that's your cousin. So I go to school the next day. I was like, hey, my mom said we're cousins. We've been best friends ever since. Oh, <laughs> like, man, that's dope. But I, once they tried to move their head grades, I didn't want to leave him behind. Yeah. You know? So. That was kind of like my reason. I was like, I don't want to leave him behind. And then my dad was like, hey, the other kids, if we move him up to like third grade, the other kids are going to beat him up every day. Right, right. <laughs> so that's kind of what I ended up saying. And then the compromise was that in kindergarten, I spent like half the day in first grade. So it just oh, so they, they they would have you like do one half. And then like when kids went to sleep, you went to the first grade class or something. Yeah, just so they could give me something to do because I was like breezing through everything. I mean, they didn't know what to do with me. So <laughs> I'm probably the only kid 
ever to get all A's and repeat a grade because I essentially went the first grade twice. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, it was like, you know, growing up, I had to try to, you know, do things to keep myself occupied. I would read a lot. I was huge into video games. That was kind of like, you know, the mental stimulation for me that I needed because, you know, there was really nothing else to do. So my two main hobbies were basketball and video games. So I spent a lot of my youth, you know, absorbed into those two things. And then as the video games, you know, that's kind of actually what put me on the path to like tech because I became curious of how they were made. And then we ended up having like these little rinky dink computers that my dad got from pawn shops that you could basically only do like, you only play like SimCity and read Encarta on. So I would load up the Encarta CDs and sit there and just Encarta. read. Encarta. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I would sit there and just load that up and read stuff. And then eventually for my 14th birthday, my dad like went and scrapped up the money and like broke the bank to get me a Sony Bio desktop computer from Best Buy. Whoa. And that like put me on the path. Like I was on that computer all the time. We eventually got dial up internet and like that kind of like put me on the path to, you know, working in technology because I was on that computer. Like as soon as I got home, well, as soon as I got home, I had to watch Dragon Ball Z, but then after <laughs> Dragon Ball Z went off and, you know, I maybe, you know, play game a little bit or went and shot some ball. I was on that computer, man. It was, unfortunately it wasn't like how it is now. Where I could yeah. just go to Code Academy and learn how to code. Like I knew about there was this thing called coding and mm-hmm. stuff, but I had no idea how to learn. Yeah. But I was on there like, you know, learning other skills. Like I was I was using my computer to hustle. Like I was burning CDs and stuff like that. I had like a list circulating around my school of like, hey, <laughs> hey, if you if you want these CDs, I got them. Enterprising. I like that. <laughs> Man, so much of that. I'm I don't you you're saying that like that's all of that kind of mirrors like my story as well, as you're mentioning that, like we didn't have a computer at home. My mom is kind of like anti-tech for the most part. Like she really just started getting on to like texting and stuff, maybe within the past two or three years. But growing up, mom, I had, we had, still don't text. She still don't text. <laughs> no, like I have a, a story about that. Like I ended up my senior year of high school playing basketball. I blew out my shoulder. Uh-huh. So, you know, full dislocation, had to have surgery and all that type of stuff. And, you know, obviously, after I got the sling, I had to go to physical therapy. One day, like, at that point, you know, as a senior, I had I wrapped up everything. Like, I was, you know, graduated, valedictorian in my class and stuff like that. And then once basketball season was over, I was pretty much done with school at, like, 1 o'clock, something like that. So then I would go to physical therapy. I remember one day I texted my mom that, hey, I'm running a little late from ther- from physical therapy. And, you know, expecting her to hear back from whatever. Didn't think nothing of it. That mm-hmm. was me as, as a senior in high school. How about I come home one time from college as a sophomore and I pick up her phone for something. That text message was still unread. Whoa. For <laughs> all just, those years? Yeah, she just, she didn't know how to text or she didn't. That, that's just, that's just never been her thing. She would rather just pick up and call. <laughs> wow. That is wild. Wow. I know I'm never going to get my mom to like FaceTime or Skype or do any of that stuff. She's like, I don't do that. She's like, I'm just, she's just learning how to do cell phones. Anything more than that is not going to happen. But like, we didn't have computers really in the house. We had like these like toy computers almost like mm-hmm. VTech. This is, oh my God, this is like I'm trying to think what years this is. Maybe like 
mid to late 80s going into the early 90s VTech used to have like legit computers like now they do like leapfrog i think and all that sort of like kitty stuff but they had these computers one in particular called the laser 50 that was it was about the size of a regular like standard keyboard like computer keyboard now but it mm-hmm. had a a dot matrix screen where the like the function keys are and so basically that whole thing was the computer and so with that you would i mean they had little games and stuff that you could play on there but it came with instructions on how to learn basic. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's how I learned basic was on that computer that, and like, I like checked out this computer book from the library on basic. I would check it out every two weeks, just this old green worn out book. I need to find that book. Cause that, that book has a lot of memories, but that's how I learned how to do computing, like basic using that. And then graduated up to something called uh, uh, the pre-computer 1000, which was a little bit bigger. It came with a handle. It was kind of heavy. It, it took six. C batteries. That thing was massive. Uh, <laughs> but, but I remember that because it made sound. And so you could make little programs that would, I guess, activate the little sound chip inside the thing. So we could do little, you could make songs and stuff like that. And that's like how I ended up getting like really into it. But like, I, I remember not really using like a legit, like personal computer. I mean, we had Apple IIe's at school. We had those, but I didn't use like a legit, like get on the internet computer well until I was in high school, maybe like. Jesus, sophomore year, maybe? So this was 97, 96, 97, something Mm -hmm. like that. When I like first like discovered the internet and was like, oh my God, what is this? But like the nearest bookstore in Selma was like 50 miles away. So I wanted to learn HTML and I was like looking at web pages, like, oh, I want to learn how to do this. And you could view the source code and learn how it all worked but like the nearest bookstore was 50 miles away and my mom's like i'm not driving 50 miles to get you a book if you want a book go to the library (laughs) at the time i was also in marching band and so with marching band we would travel to different cities for you know playing you know wherever the sports team went we went Mm -hmm. and i like that because any city that we went to there was usually a bookstore and i could get a book i could get a computer book of some sort i remember getting this big like thousand page orange book called html that had like every single (laughs) every single tag in there and how to use it and all that stuff i mean i tore that thing up just like (laughs) trying to figure it out my mom worked at a college and so i would leave school i would do i would have band practice and i would go to her uh job to the computer lab and just stay in there on the internet till it closed like every night and it wasn't until i got to college in 99 that i actually got like my first first computer but mm-hmm. yeah, like that early exposure, video games also I was big into. So like that also kind of like sparked my interest into learning more about technology. Because at the time, you, you know, you're familiar with the show A Different World, right? Of course. Yeah. Love it. I wanted to be like Dwayne Wayne. I wanted to be a, <laughs> a computer engineer and do all that stuff and work for Kanishiwa Electronics Kanishiwa and all that sort of thing. Right. And actually, when I went to Morehouse, the first thing I wanted to major in was computer science because I was like, yeah, I want to be like Dwayne Wayne. And I started out that first semester of computer science and was like, oh, this is not for me. I went to my advisor and told him about how I wanted to learn how to make web pages. Cause I was like, yeah, I've been, you know, kind of experimenting with HTML when I was in high school and I've, I've, you know, been making web pages and, you know, like take a look. And I remember him telling me like flat out that the web is a fad, like the Ooh. internet, all this stuff, all this stuff is going to blow over. Like you don't want to get into that. He's like, if that's something that you want to learn, you should probably change your major. And so I changed my major to math, which is kind of what I wanted to do in the first place. And the rest is history. 
<laughs> that professor, man, has anyone ever been more wrong about anything? Oh, my ever? goodness. He was an interesting <laughs> professor, too. He would, you know, shout out Professor Jones. He's passed on now. But, like, at the time, I mean, he was, you mentioned Dragon Ball Z. He was kind of like a, almost like an anime character in a way. <laughs> like, like, when you were in his class for the hour or 50 minutes or whatever that you were in his class, he wouldn't actually teach anything. He would just tell stories like his fishing buddies and all this sort of stuff, right? And then once you have to go to the next class and people are clearing out, whoever's left after that, that's when he starts teaching. So then he's like, okay, now we can get started. And then he'll start teaching the class. And it's like, dude, I got an 18-hour course load. I don't have time to be sitting up here waiting for you to teach the class because you wanted to give a 50-minute warm-up, you know? It was wild. The computer science department now is a lot better. But at the time, I was like... This is not what I want to do. I, I don't want to do this and just switched over. So, but yeah, that's interesting. I remember him telling me how much of a, a fad it was and nobody's going to be into that in a few years. Cause at the time, the computer science department was really all about assembly. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you're going to learn assembly. And, and like that was the, the pipeline is that you would work on like big mainframe computers and stuff like that. And that just sounded boring to me. So yeah. yeah, I didn't really go into. <laughs> so when you when you first got out to California, like was it a big culture shock from Mississippi? Like when when did it like sink in that this is now where you live? Oh, it was absolutely a huge culture shock, and not just culture shock, but sticker shock. <laughs> like oh yeah yeah yeah, man, I had a truck like all throughout college, mm-hmm. and I remember flying out here for my initial interview and you know they set me up with a rental car you know from sfo and it was like an impala and you know driving from sfo out to livermore one i was damn near scared for my life because i was like everybody's going like 90 <laughs> uh, and i'm like okay one you know it's first place being out here and then this is a beautiful area so i'm driving because mississippi's all flatland that's yeah. all i've known my whole life and I'm driving through, and there's just these rolling hills and mountains on mm-hmm. the background. And especially at the time I came out here, everything was still green. Like, you know, for context, <laughs> those not in the Bay Area, like, but the most of the time I've been out here, it's been like droughts and stuff like that. So especially like this time of the year, the, all the hills and the mountains are like brown. So, but that time that was April. So I think you know, you know, they they prop the rains or whatever they happened to you probably had just ended or something like that. So it was still all the you know the mountains and the hills and stuff were still all green and beautiful. So I'm trying to drive and like keep up on the flow of traffic, but I'm just like in awe of the scenery around me because I've never seen anything like this before. The first thing that just you know the traffic hit me, and then also just the scenery. I was like, man. It's just just mountains and stuff like all around. Like I've never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. So that was just kind of like my first exposure because I was only out here for like three days, you know, enough to like fly in, interview all day, one day, and then to come in and speak with like HR and stuff, and then you know leave back out. So when I moved out here, you know, didn't know a thing about this. But even kind of taking a step back, to that like when I met with HR and they gave my job offer, I had this number in my head that I was shooting for to get straight out of college. And it was like 60, 70,000. Cause I'm thinking, you know, I'm still going to be in the South or in like mm-hmm. the DC area. So I'm hoping to just get that. So I remember they bring me into HR and they hand me my offer letter. And I look at it 
and it said, you know, we're going to offer you a monthly salary. I think it was like ninety two hundred dollars a month. Wow. And I, and I started doing the quick math. I was like, hold up. <laughs> it's like six figures. I was like, hold on. Are you? I was like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm freaking out internally. I was like, oh, my gosh, they add an extra number here or something like are they are they going to pay me this amount? Uh-huh. And, you know, so because, again, I had very little context about yeah. the area anything like that. It's just I only knew kind of like the areas I, I was looking at to, you know, beforehand, which is primarily in the South. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Something about to pay me this much. And I didn't know any better. You know, folks or whatever didn't know any better. I am almost positive they lowballed me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm almost certain they lowballed me. But I didn't know any different. I didn't know any different to like negotiate or anything like that. So, you know, obviously I took it. I was like, oh, they yeah. offered me this amount of money. One, I ain't got no other offers. I ain't got to know anybody <laughs> else trying to hire me. Hey, y'all about to pay me this much? So absolutely I'm taking this job. So move out here and you know, like taxes. <laughs> it's like, oh man. You know, I'm, I'm thinking this is how much I'm gonna take home and ooh, taxes. Yeah. And then rent. Like yeah. first apartment was I think five hundred and ninety nine square feet at sixteen hundred dollars a month. <laughs> so and for context, man, in grad school, I had it was like a little house actually. So it was built like a studio apartment uh-huh. where it's one large room, no separate bedroom or anything like that. So just one large room, a kitchen and all that. But it was actually a house. So it was, it was I guess you call it like a flat or something. It pretty much same square foot as like six hundred square feet or whatever. I was paying three hundred and seventy five dollars for that place. Man, can't beat it. And, and I'm about <laughs> here for the same square footage, and I'm paying thirteen hundred dollars more. Yeah. And it's like you know, so just those type of things caught me by surprise. But I enjoy it for the most part. You know, growing up in Mississippi, obviously people and attitudes are much different than what they are out here. And growing up black in Mississippi, yeah. Uh, came with its own set of challenges. You know, hell, being black in, in America anywhere comes with a set of challenges. But, you know, Mississippi is like its own unique brand of hell. So um, Alabama says hi, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get it. <laughs> oh, I get it. Absolutely. <laughs> that's one of those things. It it, it was it's a big shift just in my entire life uh, yeah. moving out here. But I think it was a shift for the better. Because it provided me opportunities that I would have n- never could even fathom while being in Mississippi. At this point in your career, how do you define success? Being able to make my California salary while living somewhere else—that <laughs> that's one way to look at it. You know, just from a pure monetary standpoint. But I think being able to continue to grow and progress in my career, where I'll eventually get to the point where I can, you know, write my own ticket where should I choose to work a full time job? All right, cool. Or should I choose to just go out and consult and make my way that way? Cool. I think success is comes with like freedom and flex, like f- freedom and flexibility are going to kind of be the things that are successful uh, or the, the, what defines success for me right now. I'm not there yet. You know, it's going to be, it's a, I think success is like a continuing process versus one singular destination. Mm-hmm. Oh, so 
I think being able to, you know, have freedom, flexibility, and one, being able to take risk. Just me being black for the South, coming from very modest means, I didn't have the privilege or, you know, the capability to take on the level of risk that some other people may be able to do. But I think once I feel comfortable taking on something extremely risky where not only just kind of like flat risk, I guess you can say, where if this doesn't work out, nothing lost. Yeah. But to, to the level where I can take risk where like, OK, if this doesn't work out, I might actually lose something. Mm-hmm. I think once I get comfortable with that point, that lets me know that I've reached a certain plateau of success because as a you know, I kind of went through a lot of my life like knowing like, hey, yo, I can't make any mistakes because coming from where I come from, you might get one chance yeah. to do something and you know make something of yourself. Yeah. So I can't screw this up. Yeah. Uh, so I think once I get to a point where I feel like that is not the primary thought that I have when I take on something that I, I feel like I can take on some risks, I think that gives me an indication that I've reached. Uh, you know, a certain level of success. Yeah. What advice would you give to people out there? Like, say there's there's someone listening to this in state line. Like, what advice would you give to someone that wants to follow in your footsteps and do what you do? There are a lot more resources available now versus when I started. Leverage them. Leverage those resources, those free resources, if you're interested in coding. You can go out and you know hop on Code Academy or something like that and test it out and see if you like it. You know, at no cost to you virtually. You know, you're probably already paying for like internet or something like that, but you know, possibly already have a computer. So take a a few hours, especially in a time like this where we're all kind of have our plans kind of made for us, where we can't just go out and do what we want. Yeah, uh, go out and tinker and and see if that's what you want. YouTube is an incredible tool to learn stuff. Seriously, um, yeah. Just, just fire that up. And God, then, if, if we had YouTube back when we were were coming up, man, I mean, there is there is so much good stuff on YouTube. So you much. Know, I, I, I'm gonna tell you who actually really put me onto YouTube. My nephew. Like, really? Mostly before, <laughs> like I've, I've obviously been aware of YouTube for a long time. Most of the time I use YouTube, I was going on watching like funny videos and stuff like mm-hmm. watching, you know, just stupid stuff or like, you know, stuff that made me laugh. He was the first one that kind of put me on to like, yo, you can go and learn stuff on here because I was, you know, home visiting state line one day and he had his iPad up and he had YouTube pulled up with some Minecraft videos. And me, I think I was like tired or something like that. I saw him you know, watching it and I like dozed off. And he so he, and he had his uh, PlayStation on with Minecraft, you know. On the screen, you know, playing Minecraft, I doze off. I wake up. He's like recreated that just from what he was watching. Wow! And I was, I was like, well, I was like, hold on, how you do that? He's like, <laughs> well, watch it. I was learning from YouTube. So using those type of resources, and another thing with, and this may be a little uncomfortable or something like that, but if you see someone doing something that you may potentially interest in, you know, LinkedIn is another, another powerful tool. It can always be a little little iffy and look little you know nerve-wracking to cold call or cold email someone but a lot of times people are generally nice and it's like you know hey you're doing xyz how'd you get into it or you know or or, you know even better even less formal if you find them on twitter or something like that ask questions and then read 
you know, read and but then do like I'm honestly really bad about analysis paralysis where I'll sit there and go to a rabbit hole of like try to read everything about how to do something instead of just actually trying it. So, you know, read to an extent, but then, hell, just try it and, yeah. you know, kind of see see how it goes. How are you using your your skills and tech to help build a more equitable future? So I've started to do uh, quite a bit of speaking over the past couple of years. And I've tried to speak on things from my experience. And I have a talk that I give that I was actually supposed to go and give uh, at two different places before all the quarantine stuff happened. And it's called The Wheel Test. And it comes from this old blog post called The Joel Test, where Joel Spolsky, who's the co-founder of Stack Overflow, and for all the takers out there, they everybody knows all the takers know what Stack Overflow is. Yeah, I'll, I'll just so I, I don't know if you knew this when you when I reached out to you, but like Joel Spolsky also founded Fall Creek Software, which is now mm-hmm. Glitch, which is where I work. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> but no, go ahead, go ahead. I didn't interrupt you there. But go ahead. Separation. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he has the blog post, the Joel test where it was like, I think these 12 different points about what the evaluate the fitness of a software engineering team. And I've used that before as far as looking, you know, evaluating opportunity. But, and this is like absolutely no slight to Joel at all. You know, Joel's a white dude. So mm-hmm. he probably can just look at strictly those things on a technical basis and say, okay, this is a place where I can work or not. But you and I look different from Joel. So we might have some other, you know, things that we have to consider. And that's not just us being black, but, you know, people from you know various underrepresented communities. So I was like, what are the things as a black man that would be important to me when I go somewhere and work just from my experience and talking to other people? You know, I'm a member of Dev Color, which is near and dear to my heart. And that's like a collective of black, uh, black software engineers. And just even the experience of them, what would be important? So I came up with a list I just called the will test, where it's very similar to the Joel test, where you would then take these nine questions and simply answer them yes or no to kind of help, you know, quickly and you know evaluate a company. So that's one of the ways that I'm trying to give back and make tech more equitable, because that can be used on both sides. It can be used by an employee to say, if I'm evaluating this potential job offer, how do they measure up by these things that be, may be important to me? Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, it can be used by the companies and the managers to say, okay, we have a little bit of data that these are, these are the things that's important to our engineers who are coming from you know, underrepresented backgrounds. How are we stacking up to create you know, inclusive and productive environment, environments for them? Yeah. So that's something that I'm hoping to give back. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, you know, it's 2025. Hopefully all of this is behind us with the pandemic and quarantining and everything. But where do you see yourself in the next five years? If someone from Dell Color listens to this, they probably be pissed off at me because <laughs> we're supposed <laughs> to make our, our plans and I really have it. <laughs> but uh, that's something that I need to get better as far as where do I see myself? Uh, and not just kind of, I don't necessarily play it by ear, but I know I, I like to keep my options open. I think, I, you know, right now I'm really focusing on growing technically. That's one area that, that's one thing that I'm hoping in five years that 
I'm continuing to build that technical technical expertise. And that's another reason that I've started to try to do more speaking as well. True enough, I've you know spoke kind of like on the diversity topics, like I mentioned with like the wheel test and stuff. But I also don't want to be pigeonholed and just only speaking about those topics because I'm an engineer first and foremost. Yeah. So trying to build the expertise to be seen as an expert within my field. And, you know, I've already kind of come in and talked to my new manager at my job. I was like, yo, y'all know this is like my you know, second, third weekend, but uh, hey, I'm trying to get promoted by end of the year. What I got to do? You know, so <laughs> trying to continue to build my own and not really kind of hate this term, my personal brand, but okay. kind of building if you see William or MJ Hill, whichever you know me by, what do you think once you see that person? And I want that to be, you know, someone to think technical expertise. I want that to kind of be like what they see when they see me. Someone who could come in and get the job done technically, but also has enough emotional intelligence and stuff like that to relate and lead a team and not be a jerk. Like I've been super into the Michael Jordan documentary recently. Mm, yeah. And he is a person of like the mad genius. He was the absolute best at his field. But man, he would just grind you up Yeah, uh, as far as with his leadership style. And for some people that works, but I tend to think that I can try to be technically excellent, but also lead people and not be an asshole. Yeah. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I'm on the, the various Social networks, I I rarely use Facebook, but Twitter, I mostly tweet tweet about tech and basketball. So, but it's MJ at MJ Hill on Twitter. So MJ spelled out E-M-J-A-Y underscore Hill. Same thing on Instagram. So then E-M-J-A-Y underscore Hill. LinkedIn, like I have like a super common name. I'm like, I have the name of like a 45-year-old white man being William Hill. So it's not the easiest <laughs> to find me on, on LinkedIn. But I know like my actual uh, LinkedIn handle, if you type it, like LinkedIn slash WHill3, you can find me there. And then also, I guess another place that, I, you know, one thing I didn't really talk about is I'm also a photographer. So uh, okay. my photography website, mjhillphotography.com is like another place where I can be found online. All right. Sounds good. Well, William Hill, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I mean, as I mentioned before, when I was doing my research, I was like, I feel like we have a lot in common, like coming from small town in the South, you know, moving forward like that. And, you know, there was something that you said during the interview about, you know, about your definition of success and part of that being like being able to take risks. You know, when you come from the places where we came from mm. failure is not an option right. because we know what it's like to have nothing mm-hmm. to like come from such like, and I don't mean to say this in, in necessarily like a negative way, but like, you know what the journey is. So mm-hmm. you don't want to go back to square one as it relates mm-hmm. to that. So, I mean, I certainly applaud your, your drive and your and your passion for the work that you're doing because I mean I I intrinsically intrinsically understand like ten thousand percent where you're coming from and mm-hmm. what that means to succeed because you know when you come from the country from the deep south everyone underestimates you everyone mm-hmm. misunderstands you you're just country boy from the south 
yep. and you're black too. Like, what are you doing? You know, go learn a trade, that kind of thing, you know? Right. So I, <laughs> I'm just so glad to be able to talk to you and to, and to get a chance to know who you are and, and see what your work is. And I'm, I'm excited to see where you go in the next five years. I know this is a, a very strange and weird time that's happening right now, but I feel like if there's any type of person that can sort of make a way out of no way, it's somebody like you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, Maurice, man, I again want to thank you. Like I said, I've been, you know, aware of Vision Path for, for years now. So I, I feel absolutely honored to be, you know, asked to be on here. And I've truly enjoyed this, you know, just getting to chat with you and getting to know you some. So again, thank you so much for, you know, allowing me to be a part of this. Big thanks to William Hill, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about William and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to see those. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.